Well, good evening. Uh, let me add my welcome to Sarah's. If you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Before I pray and we get into thinking about this um, theme of marriage in Proverbs, I want you to spend just 60 seconds chatting to the person beside you, answering the question, what would define a healthy relationship? What would define a healthy relationship? Go. Well, it's starting to get quieter, so maybe it's, it's getting close to the 60 seconds up, so we might cut it there, but maybe you've got more to share, or you only heard from one person, but I uh, encourage you to hear more after the service, but may, might reflect in a moment on uh, what Proverbs offers us um, versus what you were discussing then, but let me pray for us, and then we'll think about this theme from Proverbs this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather together tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives us wisdom for living. And as we continue to look at the book of Proverbs, particularly on this theme of marriage tonight, we ask that you would give us clarity in understanding your word and that we may be able to live in the light of your wisdom. Uh, whether married or potentially uh, to be married in the future, Lord, we pray that you will teach us something uh, that will shape our thinking um, for days, for years to come. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you do an internet search uh, these days on uh, what defines a healthy relationship, you'll come up with lots of different interesting answers. Um, I came across one this week as I was researching for this talk uh, by John Kim. He's an American guy who calls himself the angry therapist. I don't know how that attracts you to go to him as a therapist, but uh, he's an American life coach. He's a writer on a website called Psychology Today and other places. But he wants to define a healthy relationship with three things. You ready for this? Three things that you need for a healthy relationship. Separate containers facing the same direction, fire in between. You're not any clearer now, um, but uh, that's his summary. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. What's he talking about? Separate containers, that is, two whole people with separate lives coming together to share their lives, but not blend into one life, but rather have their own space. Secondly, facing the same direction, but not each other. That is, support, care, listen, communicate, but allow people to be themselves and make their own choices, be independent. Thirdly, fire in between, that's chemistry and trust, which needs to be fanned or fueled uh, to keep it going. It's interesting, isn't it? And there are a lot of articles that are sort of along that track. Uh, there's a lot of people talking about healthy boundaries in marriage. Let me give you one definition um, of what they're meaning when they talk about this uh, worldly wisdom of healthy marriages and boundaries. Healthy marriages are all about boundaries, one writer says. You should be able to talk to each other about what you are and are not comfortable with regard to family, friends, finances, personal space. You hear a bit of a theme running through all this? There's certainly a sense of independence in all this advice. Many articles uh, reflect an approach of having your own space, your own things, your own time, pursuing your own dreams, but still somehow being together. Now, no doubt there is some wisdom in not being codependent in a relationship, um, but this desire for independence and the writing about it as part of the worldly wisdom today, it seems almost that people want to have marriage without marriage actually impinging them or affecting their life in any way. And I guess it's not surprising at some level because our world has been redefining marriage in the last few years. We've redefined it under law in Australia in the last 12 months. And so if our definition of marriage is increasingly unclear or blurred, 
then perhaps the expectations, by extension, the level of commitment that's thought to be healthy, is also a bit rubbery. There's some of the worldly wisdom that is out there on what defines a healthy relationship at the moment, which does beg the question, what does God have to say about what would define a healthy relationship? Well, that's our big question this evening. And we're going to particularly think in terms of marriage. What is a healthy marriage? What wisdom does the book of Proverbs offer on this important question of what makes a healthy marriage? Well, I've got three answers to that question tonight um, that come from God's word. And the first of them is this. A healthy marriage is one that pursues faithfulness. One that pursues faithfulness. Notice again um, what we read in the first passage, Proverbs 5 from verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Maybe as you've read the first part of that passage or had it read earlier, you're thinking, is this all talking about Sydney water or something? There's all this imagery here. But the passage is very evocative. It's very similar to a number of passages in Song of Songs, also written by Solomon, where metaphors are used to convey the sexual relationship of a married couple. And so in this section, this metaphor of water just keeps running through it all, doesn't it? Uh, the sexual dimension of marriage relationship is what it's talking about. And so we have this host of references to water, running water cisterns, wells, springs, streams of water, fountains. But in all of this, what the writer is trying to say, the point he is making, is that sexual faithfulness within a marriage is very important. And rather than making the point in a command, as other sections of scripture do, you shall not commit adultery. Here, as we are in wisdom literature, in Proverbs, rather what he does is he makes the point through positive rejoicing in the gift of marriage for the expression of our sexuality. And that becomes clearer to us, doesn't it, in verses 18 and 19 in this section where Solomon starts to drop off the poetic metaphors and speaks in plainer language to us and if I was to summarise the key points in these few verses in Proverbs 5, I think we could say a couple of things. Firstly, we can say that marriage is meant to be a lifelong relationship. You see, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, we have, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the father, it's all geared in the context of a father speaking advice to his son. And so my son, do this. My son, heed these words. Here's my advice on this topic. And here we come to the issue of marriage. And so the father instructs his son in verse 18, notice, always to rejoice in the wife of his youth. Um, the idea behind that is that God's blueprint is for a lifelong commitment. That marriage, which often happened at a young age in ancient Israel, would be for life. That he would continue to be married to that person that he married in his youth. Secondly, it's really clear in this section that our sexuality should only find expression within the marriage relationship. That is, God's wisdom in verse 19 and throughout the Bible indeed, is not only that marriage should be lifelong, but that marriage 
is monogamous. And it might be said in our day and age that also what is pictured here is heterosexual marriage. The man is spoken about in terms of the wife of his youth. And this is contrasted actually in the verse that happens just after this section that we didn't read in verse 20 where Solomon contrasts the faithfulness within marriage with the adultery that some people pursue as he speaks about that in verse 20. And so overall, through this little section, the big theme is faithfulness, faithfulness in marriage. We might say, well, that's a really simple point, though, isn't it? And it's something that we learn from Genesis 2 in the Bible, and it just runs all the way through. Well, let me put it to you that the theme of sexual faithfulness involves more than just avoiding adultery if you're married. Sexual faithfulness in marriage includes more than just our bodies. It also includes our eyes, our minds, our hearts. You know, when we devote our minds to sexual fantasies about another person, what we're doing at that point is sacrificing faithfulness to our spouse. When we even offer moments of emotional intimacy with another person, what we're sacrificing is faithfulness to our spouse. You see, we need to guard our faithfulness daily. We need to devote ourselves entirely to our spouse. And that requires self-discipline. It requires an awareness of the negative consequences of unfaithfulness. Above all, that it erodes trust within the relationship. Now, perhaps you think, well, I'm speaking very strongly out of this wisdom section, which maybe doesn't push as hard as this. Is this really that important that we spend time thinking, you know, that just the clear command of do not commit adultery is enough? Uh, No, I don't think so. I don't think I'm speaking strongly at all. Um, Let's have a look at Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30, and see how strongly Jesus puts this issue to us. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, there's Jesus speaking very strongly about this issue. Is it any wonder then that um, one of the few grounds that's spoken about in the New Testament uh, for any separation or divorce of a marriage is sexual unfaithfulness? It comes out in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. It's a big issue. Uh, it's a big issue in our world today. And I think the, the application that comes from this is very simple, but it is to refuse to put anything in front of your eyes or your heart that would compromise your faithfulness in your marriage. Now, maybe you think, look, uh, it's a big problem out there in society, but surely it's not a big issue within the church. Do we really need to reflect and keep thinking about this area? Well, let me tell you this. Uh, yes, I was listening to a podcast this week where Marshall Ballantyne-Jones, uh, a former Sydney Anglican minister, 
uh, was sharing some scary statistics and truths in this area. He's uh, currently doing a PhD exploring solutions to the high use of pornography amongst teenagers in Australia. That's his topic. But he's hoping that the results that come out of it, and he's almost finished his study, um, will be shared and be useful for people of all ages across churches in Sydney and beyond. And in that discussion, uh, he pointed out a couple of helpful things. One of them is this. Um, we often narrow down um, who we think is using things or what it is that we define as pornography or as those things that are dangerous uh, in terms of sexual faithfulness. Um, but he helpfully pointed out that pornography is any media that encourages lustful thoughts. Any media. And so it's not just uh, the videos or photo galleries that might be easily accessed, accessed online these days, but it's TV shows that just are full of gratuitous sex scenes like Game of Thrones and uh, many others that we might care to mention. Or indeed sexual writings, um, which could even be what we'd call sort of soft, innocent type things like Mills and Boone's novels. Uh, reason being that if any of those things produce lustful thinking in you, then they are pornography for you. And on that basis, the statistics uh, in churches in Sydney are not very good. Uh, the Anglican Church has been doing some studies as part of what he's been doing in his PhD and they've found that 75% of men under the age of 40 um, are using such material regularly and 20 to 30% of women. That's in the church. The stats go up even higher if we want to step outside of the church. Now I want to say to you tonight, um, if that includes you that you bring that before God and repent. It's so important that you do that. This is a big issue, and it's not going to go away. And if it's something that's come into your life, you need to address it and address it quickly. But be assured, if we bring these things before God, that he will forgive us. Whatever has taken place in our life, you know, Christ died to pay for all our sin, including in this area of sexual immorality. But let me also say, to make real progress, if this has become a pattern or an addictive behaviour within your life, that you also need to share this with a trusted Christian friend or somebody that is going to keep you accountable. Maybe you don't have a friend in your life that you feel you could do that with, that that would be too difficult. In that case, seek out a Christian counsellor or somebody that is going to walk through that with you and really keep you accountable. And of course, there's lots of other practical steps that can be taken. There's lots of accountability software for computers and all kinds of things, which I'm sure many of you would be aware of today. But let me say to you that in the end, what we need is God's help. We need the work of his spirit within us that he might sanctify us and make us more and more like his son, that we may turn away from lustful actions, from sexual unfaithfulness in our marriage or impurity before God. Because a healthy marriage is one that pursues faithfulness. It's not one that hopes there is faithfulness. There's not one that's complacent or drifts into other things. It's one that pursues faithfulness, always. Well, there's my first answer. What makes for a healthy marriage? One that pursues faithfulness. Secondly, 
What makes for a healthy marriage? One that pursues partnership and produces praise. One that pursues partnership and produces praise. Have a look with me at the second passage from Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 12. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. See, what we see expressed in this introduction to the wife of noble character, um, and which is expressed in many verses that follow, is a sense of partnership between the husband and wife in their marriage. Verse 11 is key here. It brings out this theme right at the start of this section, this idea of a trusted partner in this phrase, full confidence or full trust. You see, there's no sense in this passage um, that the wife is a lesser partner or that she's any less capable than her husband or holds any less responsibility in the marriage relationship. Both of them are to play their role and to serve together. And it's very clear, isn't it, when we look at this passage, that the, the wife mentioned here is a lady of some means. I mean, she's got servants in verse 15. She's investing money in verse 16. Um, she's managing their land, buying and selling various goods. It seems like she's a trader in verse 18 and verse 24. She's pictured as a tireless worker who's caring not only for the needs of her immediate family in verse 15, but she's even looking out for the needy in the community around them that she might help them as well. And in addition to all these practical skills in business and care for people, notice in verse 26 that she also speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She has wise words as well as wise actions. It's a great picture, isn't it, of a godly person. She has wisdom to impart to those in her household, uh, presumably in the ordinary conversation of day to day, but also particularly in instructions, in the word used there, perhaps to the servants, but perhaps others um, in her household, her children. And so there's this picture that keeps building through this section of partnership in marriage. And it's also inferred in verse 23, you might think, well, this is all just a description of the wife. I don't see a lot of partnership here. He's hardly mentioned in this passage. Um, where is the partnership? Well, he does get mentioned in verse 23. Have a look at that. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Now, perhaps as you read that verse, the last thing you were thinking is partnership. And in fact, if you're married here and you're the wife, you're thinking, yeah, that'd be right. 2,000 years and nothing has changed. You know, I seem to be doing everything under the sun and he's sitting at the city gate. Wow, how, where is he helping and partnering with me in what we're doing? Now, I think it does read that way superficially, but let me say uh, there's a little bit more to what's going on in verse 23. So a town gate was the official place in Israelite culture where decisions were made of public importance, where judgments were handed out. Actually, the court, as it were, for that town or village would meet and decisions would be made about things that were happening in the life of the community. And so... The phrase as well, being seated, is a phrase that has to do with making judgments, this sort of courtroom type gathering. Um, it doesn't really imply that the men were all just sitting down playing chess or some ancient equivalent of the day and doing nothing all day, uh, but they're meeting for a purpose um, to make decisions on behalf of the community. And what actually sits behind that, the implication of him being able to do that, points again to their partnership, the wife's efficiency in managing their land and all these commercial activities that seem to be going on. 
so that her husband is actually freed up to play such a role in the public life of the community. Again, they're freeing each other to use their various skills and gifts as they partner together and work for the good of their family and indeed the whole community around them. It's a wonderful picture of partnership. Now, there's actually a second theme that's running through this section in Proverbs 31 towards the end. And did you notice it's one of praise? You see how the whole book of Proverbs ends in verses 28 to 31 on this note of praise. Verse 28. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all, he says. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honour her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Notice that the wife is praised by her husband in verse 28 and 29. And indeed it seems um, the community are praising her at verse 31, presumably because the husband has been singing her praises to others out in the community. Let me tell you how wonderful my wife is and the things that she is doing. And so others are praising her for the activities she's doing. You see, that's the point of the praise there. She does certain things in verse 29. Her works of her hands are being praised in verse 31 at the city gate. But it's not her success per se in the things that she is doing, but it's how her actions reflect a wise life. Actually, the key verse at the end of Proverbs 31 here is verse 30. Did you pick that up? The foundation of all that is flowing out of this woman's life is her fear of the Lord. It brings us back, doesn't it, at the end of the book to the very thing we saw two weeks ago in chapter 1, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. That is somebody who is in awe of God and his power and our accountability before him and therefore submits fully to his word, is eager to respond to his teaching, is wonderfully conveyed through this description of the noble wife in Proverbs 31. And so we have this great picture, a fitting conclusion to the book of Proverbs as she actually captures a whole lot of the wisdom that has been unfolding in the book. Here she is embodying some of the wisdom on work, on the management of money, of care of family, all rolled into this description at the end of the book. But perhaps um, that raises the question for you about you know, the importance of praise. Uh, why is praise such a big note here at the end? You know, are we really just looking for praise all the time? Are we to be people pleasers that are only doing things because we're seeking feedback and we're wanting others to affirm us all the time? Maybe there's something superficial about that. Is that really important? Well, let me say, certainly we're not uh, simply seeking the praise of others. We live to please our Father in heaven. But think about this for a moment, the importance of praise in any relationship, but particularly a marriage relationship, and what is being brought to our attention here. Let me put it more starkly for you by um, quoting from the American pastor and author C.J. Mahaney. He's written a book on marriage and in it he says this. We communicate with words every day, don't we? 
Phone calls, voicemails, emails, instant messages, text messages, letters and memos. Words fill our existence. For many of us, our days just revolve around giving and receiving information, whether in person or in some form of technology. And so why do so many of us men go home at the end of the working day, home to our wife, the most important person in the world, and suddenly stop communicating clearly, creatively and with purpose? It so often happens, I might say. And perhaps the people nodding around the room are acknowledging that. Why is praise so important? Because praise makes us feel loved. Praise increases our confidence levels. Praise makes us feel united, that we're working together, that we truly are partnering. It is so powerful. It's such a small thing that we can always be doing. You know, a story is told of a married couple who went to see a counsellor. They'd been really struggling in their marriage and uh, they they came in the room to see the counsellor and they're both really angry with each other, could hardly uh, look at each other. And as soon as they sat down, they just started into their own individual diatribes, talking over the top of each other, criticising with long lists of all the things that were wrong with their spouse. And eventually when they ran out of breath and out of uh, reasons to critique their spouse, the counsellor said... Okay, now I'd like you to say something positive, something praiseworthy about your spouse. Dead silence, refusing to look at each other. He said, okay, well, let's do it a different way. And he handed them a piece of paper and a pen. We're not moving on until you write down the things that you love about your spouse. I want some words of praise on that page. And they sat there refusing to pick up the pen for a while. And eventually, uh, they both start writing down. Somewhat reluctantly, it might be said. Uh, eventually, uh, the wife has finished hers and pushes the paper towards the counsellor. And he said, no, 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 I want you to hand that directly to your husband. And likewise, you hand your sheet to her. And then they began to read, read what each other had written about them. And tears started coming down their cheeks. And the whole atmosphere of the room changed and in fact by the end the counsellor needed to say very little to either of them love expressed in praise had healed a thousand wounds and the couple left arm in arm what I'm describing there is the power of praise the power of praise don't underestimate that this is wisdom for God Pursue faithfulness, pursue partnership, pursue praise. Let me give you my third and final answer to the question, and we're going to jump outside of Proverbs at this point. What makes for a healthy marriage? One that focuses on the heavenly marriage to come. One that focuses on the heavenly marriage. See, in Ephesians 5, that passage that we so often go to about marriage, and rightly so because it's an important one in the New Testament, we learn that marriage is likened to a greater relationship, that of Christ and his church. And so we realise as we read Ephesians 5 that marriage is actually a foreshadowing of an eternal relationship. And so marriage is to be based on and to point to that far greater reality. And that perspective helps us think about our earthly marriages with the right perspective in light of this greater reality. 
It helps us to see the greater goal of serving Christ in all that we do, including in our marriage. It reminds us that our earthly marriages are not eternal, but our relationship with Christ is. That is the eternal marriage. Remember, as um, Jesus was arguing with the Sadducees one day in Matthew 22, verse 30, and they're laughing at him about the resurrection, trying to poke fun at it. And Jesus says to them in the midst of this discussion, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And so what we need to realize is that our greater focus should be on the relationship that is eternal and to understand our earthly relationship in that light. Whether you're single or married today, if you're a Christian, you're engaged to Christ. And it's about your faithfulness to him first and foremost, and that will flow into any other relationship you have in your life. Indeed, you might even see the Holy Spirit that you've been given at the point that you trusted in Jesus in repentance and faith as the engagement ring. It's the down payment, the promise of the consummation of that marriage that you will one day be with Christ face to face when, his, when your bridegroom will take his church, his bride, to be with him. Indeed, that's what we await, the new creation, where we'll enjoy the wedding banquet of the bridegroom. We will be with our Saviour. And that's one of the beautiful pictures that we get in Revelation of what is to come. Have a look again of these famous words in Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. The Apostle John writes, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Well, that is a wedding reception that you don't want to miss. Sadly, I've missed some, some by mistake. <laughs> Others, I, um, for whatever reason, I didn't make it to. But this is one that you simply cannot miss, and you won't miss if your faith is in the Lord Jesus. And this brings perspective to our human marriages, as important as they are before God. And these themes that we've seen in the book of Proverbs actually find their fulfillment in Revelation 19. So we've been talking about faithfulness, we've been talking about partnership, we've been talking about praise, and each of those categories find their fulfillment in Christ in Revelation 19. Let me explain. Rather than calling us simply to be faithful to each other, as we should be in our earthly marriages, what we learn in Revelation 19 is that Jesus is the faithful one. He is the one that is obedient even unto death, that he follows the Father's plan, that he might prepare a people that are his very own, that he might gather a bride that would be there that day at the wedding banquet. Jesus is the faithful one. And as a result in this passage, even in what we've read in verse 7, is that not only the 24 elders and the angels, but also all those who are God's people who are there present will rejoice and praise the Lamb who was slain. Because Christ is worthy of all praise, the one who should be honoured above all. Indeed, the fulfilment of all praise comes as we worship in the perfection of heaven. And we're partners with him. It seems incredible, but we can call Jesus our elder brother. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are with him around his table, invited to his wedding banquet. 
Yes, he is the eternal son of God to whom all glory and praise and honor must be given. And yet we are partnered with him. We are brought with him as his people, rejoicing in his love for us, his bride prepared, made ready for him. It's a great picture of the fulfillment of these themes. But let me bring us back to the present. How does all that help us with our earthly marriages or perhaps our future earthly marriages? I want to draw three conclusions as we finish. Firstly, a word to those who are married. If you're married here this evening, do you understand the importance of your marriage before God? Yes, it's only a shadow that points to a far greater reality, but it's still very important because it is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. It is point people to that greater reality and what God is doing, what he is at work at in his world. And so if you understand the importance of your marriage before, your, before God, then my question then is what are you doing to enrich your marriage, to encourage your spouse to keep working at this most important of human relationships. You know, even if marriages are made in heaven, as people like to say, and that is true in that it's a God-given design for the good of humanity, but they are, it's humans that are responsible for them. And so we need to keep working in our marriages. And even in a room this big, with many single people I realise as well, there will be somebody or more than one person who is terribly unhappy at this moment in their marriage. Perhaps contemplating what it would be like to be free from it. Let me say to you, if that is you tonight, that my heart goes out to you, that God is greatly concerned for you and loves you and wants you to keep persisting and growing in your marriage. Please keep working at it. Spend more quality time together. Cut back on work or whatever it is that's getting in the way of you investing more time in your marriage. Have a weekend away or a decent holiday. Make a plan to address things. Don't just let things keep drifting. If you sense that there is a distance and that you're struggling, seek counselling. Go and get help. There is no problem in doing such things you need to fight for your marriage pray for your marriage so often as things start to get difficult in whatever area it is of our life then we try to figure it out ourselves no i'm just going to work this out i'm going to try harder i'm going to do this and the last thing we often run to is prayer and it should be the first pray for your marriage god's desire is that your marriage is lifelong it's to be a pursuit of faithfulness partnership and praise And let me say, if your marriage is healthy, praise God, but please keep working at it. Don't be complacent. Don't just take that for granted. Things don't stay static through life. We face ups and downs. There's going to be challenges that will come. And if things are going well now, praise God, but also realize the important role you have with your marriage of being an example before others, the importance that that is in a church community, and keep working at it. Go to the marriage course. Enrich your marriage further. Encourage others to do the same. And if you're a married couple here, please interact with everyone in our church community. So often what can happen is, you know, I'm a newly married couple and so I'm just going to relate to others that are in the same stage of life as I am. And so, you know, perhaps we shut out those from our life that we were friends with who are single now that we're married. 
or I can't relate to somebody who's an older married couple because, oh, well, they're not the same as me, and so, you know, that reduces down who I'm going to interact with. That's not the body at work in a church family. We're not a bunch of singles and couples that just run into each other on a Sunday. We're to do life together, to embrace people, to invite them into our homes, to be part of a relationship that's across all ages and stages, to interact with others. And if there are people who are single who have not yet married or they may be widowed or divorced, include them as well. We've got to demonstrate that. Secondly, a word to those who are single here tonight. Please, as we focus on um, a topic like marriage, don't hear anyone saying, certainly not myself, that somehow single is a, a lesser status than being married. Not at all. Uh, we know Jesus and Paul and others uh, lived single throughout their life. Indeed, Paul encourages people to remain single so that they can give greater focus in their life to serving the Lord Jesus without all the struggles and um, management of their time as they um, get married and the responsibilities that then come with having a spouse. But if you would like to be married someday, certainly if you're already in a serious relationship, already engaged, then your number one focus should be in your relationship with Christ. The best thing you can do to prepare yourself for marriage is to be growing in godliness as a Christian. That is the most wonderful thing that you could do for your future spouse, to be somebody who is growing into the likeness of Jesus day after day. Now, by all means, also study up on marriage. Look at what the Bible has to say about marriage. Think about what it would be, particularly if you're in a serious relationship that you're hoping is heading towards marriage. Do those things. Please don't skimp on preparation and thinking about your future marriage. You know, Australians spend more time preparing for their driver's license than they do for a marriage. It seems laughable, doesn't it? But it's true. What, we have to spend, what, 120 hours to go from L plates to P plates? You could cross off a zero and you'd be lucky to have that much in terms of preparation for a marriage. If people do 12 hours of preparation before they get to the marriage, think, wow, we've really prepared. Maybe that's why we've got lots of good drivers, I don't know, um, but we've got lots of marriages that are struggling and a high divorce rate. There are lots of sad things about those statistics. Don't be that fickle. Think about how important it is to prepare for marriage. Think about the marriage course again for that reason. Thirdly and finally, a word to everyone. We're all to prepare ourselves for the wedding banquet of heaven. How do we prepare for that? Well, the Apostle John actually talks about it in that passage. He says, you should be preparing for this day by putting on your wedding clothes. Yeah, okay, <laughs> how does that help me? What wedding clothes am I wearing in Revelation 19? Well, then he describes it, that it's putting on holiness, that it's growing in godliness. As we prepare and are shaped to be in the presence of our Saviour forever, we're to grow in godliness. Now, we won't reach perfection this side of heaven. Sin will finally be done away with once and for all. And that which mars our world here won't exist in heaven. Absolutely. But we are to grow and move towards that point in this life. So let us keep growing. Whatever our marital status, we need to keep growing in our love of Jesus and our desire to live for him and respond to his word. Whether you're single or married, you're engaged, you're engaged to Christ. And you need to grow in godliness. And whether married or single, you're living to serve Jesus. And it's his kingdom which is most crucial. We're to live for him 
and our marriages should point forward to that far greater reality. Well, will you pray with me as we close? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wisdom that you provide us in your word. We thank you that you call us into a marriage relationship as an expression of the natural affections that you've endowed us with, but that marriages struggle because we are sinners, that we are flawed people. As we struggle in marriage, you call us to the wisdom of faithfulness, of pursuing partnership and praise, and above all, keeping in mind our goal as we head for heaven. Uh, Lord, I pray for those who are married tonight that you might strengthen our marriages, that we may grow in our love and ability to serve our spouses. And for those who may yet be married, who are single at this time, Lord, continue to shape each one, uh, that you might continue to prepare us for whatever you have ahead for us. May, us. may all of us, above all, be growing in godliness, that we may serve our Lord and Saviour more and more each day. For we ask it in his name.